About eight months ago, pre-pandemic, I was on an overnight flight and personally I have a very hard time sleeping on airplanes. So I'm always grateful on those long flights when there's a little private TV screen in front of me and I can choose some movies to watch. And actually nowadays there are too many movies. It takes me half the flight just to scroll through them all. But on this particular flight, um, near the beginning, because they were listed alphabetically, I came across the movie Braveheart. And let's see if anyone acknowledges having seen it. Okay, yes, okay, so there are some. Um, Braveheart is, uh, you know, stars Mel Gibson, and uh, it's a Hollywood retelling of this fight for Scottish independence. I, remembered, I had remembered watching this movie many years before, so I started it up again on the little screen in front of me. Now, uh, like I said, this is a Hollywood account, so I have no idea how accurate it is. So everything I'm going to say from here on out about this movie is based on Hollywood's projection, not necessarily history. So it's about William Wallace, who I'm also fairly certain was not as attractive as Mel Gibson, but William Wallace, the Scottish hero who fights... Um, against the English to try to free Scotland. Now, what most impressed me about the movie, though, is the incredible difficulty that Wallace had in uniting the Scottish nobles. See, each of these nobles had their own tiny little domain, their own little area that they ruled, and they were scattered around the country. And because of this, they had been easily subjugated by the English, if they had only united, they would have been able to throw off the English yoke, they, but they were so suspicious of one another. They were so arrogant and selfish that when they were confronted by the united forces of England, they couldn't agree on who should lead, on who would command, on when and where to fight, on the strategy they should use, and who would get the credit and the glory. And for this reason, at least in the movie, England was able to maintain the Scottish under their authority. Now today we've arrived at the closing verses of chapter 4 of Acts. So far, Luke has written primarily a narrative. He's been telling the story and the history of the beginning of the church. But now, in verses 32 through 35, he takes a brief but important moment to stop the narrative, sort of put the story on pause and spend some time in description. He paints a picture for us of this group of early Christians who lived in Jerusalem and the profound unity that was a primary characteristic of that community. So I'm going to read this description. It's only a few verses long. And as I do, I want you to note how... I was going to use the word radical, but that's one of those words in Christianese that is being overused, kind of like the word awesome. Um, but it is a radical unity that is reflected in the early church. So I'll be reading from verses 32 through verse 35 of Acts chapter 4. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. 
There were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the, from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Through this short description, Luke shows us four principles about unity within the church. Four principles I want to draw out for us this morning. And it just so happens that each principle begins with a letter P. Isn't that perfect? Unity is paramount. Unity is practical. Unity is for a purpose. And unity is not perfection. Okay, those are going to be our four points. The first one is that unity within the church is paramount. What does that word mean? It means above all else or of highest priority. For the body of Christ, for the church, even in 2020, perhaps even more so in 2020, unity continues to be paramount. Do you remember how Jesus prayed for us as recorded by the Apostle John in chapter 17 of the, the Gospel of John? And when I say that Jesus prayed for us, I mean exactly that. He prayed for all the believers that would be part of the legacy of his church. How did he pray for us? Well, I'm glad you asked. Um, in, in John 17, beginning with verse 20, listen to how Jesus prays. He begins by praying for his 12 disciples, and then he moves into prayer for the church. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. That's us. That all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you. May they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me that they may be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. Of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for us, he prayed that we would, have, that we would be brought to complete unity, that we would be one. If that's his primary prayer for us, isn't it a pretty clear sign that unity in the church should be a very high priority? And listen again to Luke's opening phrase of this passage here. All the believers were in one heart and mind. All the believers were in one heart and mind. Do you hear the echo of Christ's prayer? A few months after Jesus' death and resurrection and his prayer for his church is already being answered. It's already coming true. They are one as he prayed they would be. Now we read that first line and it sounds wonderful, doesn't it? All the believers were one in heart and mind. I, I love that. It's a nice phrase. It sounds good, doesn't it? But I want to ask you, what does it conjure in your imagination? Just that phrase. What, is it, what does it bring up to you? How do you think of it? What does it mean? Now, my natural tendency is go to the, to go to the, the, the warm fuzzies. And I get stuck kind of at the feeling stage. 
Without making a conscious decision to do so, I interpret this phrase to mean they were all happy together. They enjoyed each other. They had good feelings toward, and and they all got along. Now, while that may be true, I think it's a pretty shallow way to think of unity. So, Luke gives an example to illustrate what it means that they were one in heart and mind. And by his choice of example, he shows us the second principle about unity, that unity is practical. It it requires choices and actions, not just feelings and emotions. And what example does he choose? Money. You know, Scripture consistently shows us that true faith in Jesus must, it must touch our wallets and our bank accounts. And this is a really good example because it gets us right where it hurts. It goes right to the nitty-gritty. I don't know if you've ever had a very sore spot on your back and received a massage. I'm convinced that, that massage therapists, there's something in them that is sadistic. Um, kind of along with dentists. There's something that's, that's, that's sadistic there. And so, you know, you've, I've got this pain in my back or whatever, and they, they go around until they find it. And then what do you want? You know, you want gentleness. That's not what you get. They get that finger that's been trained for years and it's so strong and just dig it in there right where it's the most painful. You're like, wait, I came here to get rid of this pain, not to have it intensified. Now, this is, in a sense, what Luke is doing. He's putting his finger for us today right where it hurts, right where we have this issue. And he digs that finger of the truth of the gospel in there, and it hurts. But the purpose is so that eventually there will be healing. What does Luke's example here say about money and unity? What does it it mean for us? What is it communicating to us? I don't want to scare you, but I'm going to tell you seven brief points, and I promise you they'll be brief. First of all, this kind of remarkable generosity and giving was motivated by the Holy Spirit. That's the first point. There's no other explanation. Because in this context, there's no decree that's gone out from the apostles. There's no law of the land that they have to do this or that they're obligated to do it. And so far in Acts, what has been motivating the church? It's been the Holy Spirit. So clearly, sharing their possessions, sharing their money in this remarkable generosity and concern for others, it's motivated by the Holy Spirit. Secondly, it's voluntary. There, as I said earlier, there was no outside pressure that was being put on them. It was something that each one did of their own accord. And actually, next week, we're going to see the results of what happens when people give with the purpose of impressing others. Ananias and Sapphira. Don't know if you're, you're, most of you are familiar with that account. It's terrifying. And so, impressing others, uh, or even keeping up with others, or competing with others, or giving because someone else is giving more, that's not the motivation. 
And in the same vein, I should also mention here that sometimes this description here is called uh, Christian communism. I've heard it referred to as such. But that's not accurate either because under communism, the citizen is required to give, actually not really required to give because in theory there's no private property. So everything belongs to everyone else. In this case, the generosity arises from their own hearts. Under communism, everything in theory belongs to everyone else, right? That's the theory. But for us, brothers and sisters, listen to this. This is important. Under the law of Christ, everything belongs to God. Everything that that we own, our salaries, our possessions, our investment, everything is his. We are his stewards. So it only makes sense that if these are his funds, we would use them for the sustenance and aid of his people. There's an interesting phrase here. It says, those who owned houses and lands. Um, That's not talking about individuals necessarily who owned one house where they lived So they would sell their house and be homeless. It's referring to landlords, people who of maybe significant means who owned several properties or more. And as they saw needs within the body, as they recognized these needs, they would sell one of their properties and bring the the proceeds and give them to the apostles. So it's, it's, it's voluntary. This is a very important point. Thirdly, It's a result of God's grace. For many of us, this kind of generosity is really, really hard. We're attached to our possessions. We like them. We we like to enjoy our income. We like to spend it on ourselves. But to give as the early church did, it requires God's grace. It's not something that we humans will do on our own account simply in order to bless others. We might do it if we're going to get some kind of credit, right? I mean, we want the credit. If we're doing something good, you know, we want to make sure that there's a little bit of notice out there. So people are seeing this. That's not what Christ wants us to do. That's not his calling. And that's why to give, as the early church did, it requires the presence and activeness of God's grace. You notice this phrase here that there was much grace upon them all. And in some translations, and even the newer NIV editions, they change the punctuation there a little bit and add a preposition so that it reads, uh, and much grace was upon them all so that there were no needy persons among them. So it makes a direct correlation between God's grace and the provision of the needs. Now, if I use that phrase, we also need to make sure that we define grace. What does that mean? Well, my favorite definition was taught to me by someone named Bill Fawcett, Pastor Bill Fawcett, who actually happens to be here today. Uh, Pastor Bill and Mary, we're glad that you're here. We are glad that you are well and alive. So Pastor Bill, also known as Dad, um, you've heard him teach this before. What is grace? The supernatural ability that God gives his children to live in a way that pleases him. Okay, hear that again. What is grace? It's the supernatural ability that God gives his children to live in a way that pleases him. And see, for, us to, for the church to give like this, for the church to live in unity like this, we have to have God's grace because it's not going to happen 
out of our own efforts. And it's not going to happen from our own strength. Fourthly, it requires sacrifice from everyone. Okay? Not just from the wealthy, not just from the poor, from everyone. This unity through generosity affects the entire community. For those who had much, it required sacrificial giving. For those who had little, it required sacrificial giving. Wait, is that really right? Yes, that's right. I am always impressed by the guideline that C.S. Lewis gives in his book, Mere Christianity, for how much should we give. And he responds by saying, I don't know how much we should give, but I think there's only one safe measure, and that is that we should give more than we can afford. He said, because if it, that's the only way that we can be certain we're giving enough. Now, that's C.S. Lewis's view, but I think that's a, a challenging perspective. For those who had much, it requires sacrificial giving. For those who have little, it requires sacrificial giving. For those who had more, it required an attitude of compassion toward those who had less. For those who have less, it requires an attitude of non-judgment toward those who have more. And all of those are attitudes of sacrifice because we all want to judge one another. That's a natural human tendency. We want to judge those who have a lot for how they use their money for not giving enough. Sometimes we judge those who have little because, oh, they haven't been wise or they haven't been careful or they haven't worked hard enough or whatever it may be. But we make these assumptions about people. But giving toward unity in this way requires sacrifices from all people. Fifthly, in this context, they provided first for those who were part of the community of Christ. And that makes sense. There's, there's so much overwhelming need in the world today. You know this. You live in Sao Paulo. At almost every traffic light that you come to, you will see evidence of need, profound need. It's everywhere. It's overwhelming. I think it was probably similar for believers in Jerusalem. There was need everywhere. But the principle of giving toward unity is that we within the church care first for those within our community. If we really are a family, as, as God images his church as such, he's father, we're brothers and sisters, we're sons and daughters, then we first have a responsibility toward those in the family before we consider those who are not part of the family. Now, that does not mean that we are hard or cold toward the needs of others. But it's simply the principle that we care for the family first. The unity within the body of Christ. And this text doesn't say that there was no one in Jerusalem in need. It says that there was no one among them in need. Sixthly, it was ongoing. There are five verbs here that reference this progression of giving. Owned, sold, brought, put, and distributed. Now, the tense of these verbs in Greek is important. We don't really have a comparable tense in the English language. It's the imperfect tense in Greek which refers to a past action that was ongoing. What this means is, the, the, the reason when Luke chooses this tense, he's saying this was not just a momentary description. This was not something that happened just for a period of two weeks. This was something that had a definite beginning, but it was ongoing. 
So as the life of the church continued, as the community grew, those who had lands and houses, as they, they would from time to time sell and bring and give and distribute. I like the way the progression of these verbs, if you stick them all together like I did earlier, because it goes from something tight and small and contained to something broad, right? Owned, sold, and then brought, put at the disciples' feet, and then what? The blessing spreads. It's distributed. It goes. It's out there. Here's the last point, the seventh point under this this fact that that, uh, unity is practical. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. Christians, us, we must be willing to give to provide for our brothers and sisters within our community. Very simple. It's not complicated, but we need to be prepared for that. Which brings us to our third overall point. So giving is paramount, I'm sorry, unity is paramount. Unity is practical, and now unity is for a purpose. I don't know if you've ever had the privilege of attending an orchestra concert that involves a symphony orchestra. There's a whole ritual that goes on at the beginning as it starts, right? So first you walk in and and the instrument, different musicians are coming in and they're taking their seats and you just hear this cacophony of noise. Boom, 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 boom on the drums and it's just a mess, right? And then all of a sudden everything gets quiet. And if you're in the audience, you're kind of looking around what's going on and then this person walks onto the stage um, carrying a violin. And there's one empty chair there in the violin section. This person is the concert master or concert mistress, right? The first chair, first violinist. And they, of course, there's a whole ritual where they bow and everyone claps and they turn to the, to the orchestra. And, you know, there's a whole recognition, a whole ritual. And then what do they do? That violinist plays an open A string. And all the instruments, even though they're so diverse and different, they all tune to that one note. And after everyone is tuned, you know what they do? It's really interesting. They all get up and they bow and they leave and go home. Because they're all in tune. They're all unified. We achieved unity. Let's go home. Of course not. Thank you, Kevin, for laughing and, you know, kind of breaking that, that, that tension there, that silence for recognizing it. Yes, um, they, they don't tune for the sake of tuning. They don't become unified just for the sake of being unified. They do it for a further purpose, which is to play music. Beautiful music, hopefully. In the same way, Unity within the body of Christ is not the end goal. We strive for unity for a greater purpose. What is that purpose? Witness to the gospel of Jesus. Luke communicates this by using a very short chiasm. A few months ago, I introduced you to the concept of chiastic structure, where an author will take two principles, pairs of principles, and put them together. And then as he he or she moves through the text, 
They get narrower and narrower and narrower until they get to the central point that they're trying to make. Now, we look at this passage through Western eyes and we think, Luke, you really needed to make an outline before you wrote this. Because you're jumping around and things are out of order. That's because we're looking at it from a Western mindset. But what Luke does is he uses a chiasm to draw our attention to what is most important. So notice he begins with a statement that they were one in heart and mind. And then he talks about what? The sharing, the giving, the generosity. That's the first point of, of, of the chiasm. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared with everything they shared everything they had. And then there's the central point. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And then he goes back to that second pairing of the chiasm, which is the giving again, the generosity, the sharing. There were no needy persons among them from time to time. Those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the, etc. What's the point? What's in the middle? Evangelism is in the middle. Sharing, evangelism, sharing. Giving, witness, giving. The giving... The unity is for the purpose of proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus Christ. When I was in eighth grade, I loved basketball. I still do, and I loved it before eighth grade. But this event happened when I was in eighth grade. One day, uh, the coach of the older girls team, so the high school girls team, came to me and he said, tomorrow... I would like for my girls' team to play against you and some of your friends from eighth grade. Would you like to play against us? Would I like to play against you? Well, absolutely. Especially, and, and I said, yes, sir, absolutely we'll play against you. But what I was thinking in my mind was, these are girls, and we're boys. Now, I know they're a little older than we are, but we're, we're going to destroy them. So I went and I got my cronies. You know, I don't remember who they were, but I got four of my cronies. And I was like, guys, tomorrow, Coach Benson wants us to play against the varsity girls. And we were so, we were so excited because we, we just knew that the taste of victory was right there, you know, that we, the younger boys, would defeat the older girls. Well, about two minutes into this game, it was not going well. It wasn't going well for us. It was going very well for the girls. What was the difference? The girls were coached. They were organized. They, were, they knew what they were supposed to be doing, when they were supposed to be doing it, and how they were supposed to be doing it. We just assumed that our natural giftedness in basketball would be enough to win. And, you, and what started happening is that we started getting angry at each other. So we would start complaining and blaming. So why did you do that? Why was open? Why didn't you pass it to me? And the coach of the girls team, he just stood on the sidelines and every time I would run by him, he'd say, you have dissension on your team. And he would just say it real quietly. Just say, you have dissension on your team. And it was just like Luke with his finger right there where it hurt, just like digging it in. We lost by a lot. 
I don't know how much it was, but it was embarrassing, it was humiliating, and we lost by a lot. And hopefully we learned some lessons along the way, like pride going before a fall and all that kind of stuff. But here's the point. Our lack of unity meant that we were unable to fulfill our calling. We couldn't do it. And the church must be a unified community so that it can be a witnessing community. Evangelism must have priority of place. Would the witness of the apostles have had the same power and conviction if they were speaking out of a splintered, backbiting community full of unforgiveness and bitterness that distrusted one another, that had many who were in great need and others who had great funds but yet never showed concern for their brothers and sisters? Of course not. Of course their proclamation would not have had the same power. The purpose for which we seek unity is the proclamation of the gospel. I don't know if you caught it earlier when I read Christ's prayer for us. But Jesus prayed the same thing. That all of them may be one Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Why should they be one? So that the world will believe. And he repeats it again. I and them and you and me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. What is the purpose and the point of unity? The proclamation of the gospel. And if we're proclaiming the gospel out of a fractured community, the the power of the gospel doesn't change, but the power of the proclamation does, and it is diminished. The fourth and final point is that unity is not perfection, or unity does not mean perfection. We might get the wrong idea from this passage that what Luke is describing is a utopian community. Let me just tell you this. Read a little bit more in the book of Acts. Just a little bit more. You're not going to have to go very far. And you're going to discover that in spite of this incredible unity, there are still conflicts and disagreements and frustrations between believers. And some of them are really major. Some of them are among their leaders. And some of them are going to change the direction of missions within Scripture, within history. But I would suggest that unity has less to do with the absence of conflict and more to do with how that conflict is handled. True unity is hard. It means that we're going to be disappointed with each other from time to time. It means that we're going to need to be willing to forgive. And the flip side of that is that we're going to be need, need to be willing to admit when we are wrong. It's going to mean sacrificial giving. It's going to mean concern for others before concern for ourselves, sacrificing our own comfort and resources to bless and provide for others. But, though it's hard, it's also good. 
And its result is the proclamation of the gospel to the world. New souls saved, new brothers and sisters claimed for the family of God. That is worth it. There are two practical ways that I want to offer you uh, to, to apply what I've been talking about today. The first has to do with, with giving. I want to acknowledge that overall, the Calvary community is a very generous community. And sometimes I'm privy to information about the generosity of people that, that isn't widely spread. And it, but, it, but it's extremely moving because there are people within our congregation who have very little and yet give consistently and generously to the needs of others. We have people with our, within our, our community that have a lot of resources and I have seen them give likewise, sacrificially and generously. It's not about how much we give, it's about the attitude of the heart in giving and whether we are giving sacrificially or whether we are giving sparingly. Now, one thing that we've established, one method for giving that we've established uh, a few months ago is, I guess you could call it, we don't really have a name for it, a giving group, uh, an anonymous giving group. But this is a, a, a WhatsApp group that is run by um, Roberto Garcia, one of our deacons, he leads this group. And the, the group exists so that when there are specific needs within the body that come up, we, he, he sends a message to the people in this group. There's no manipulation. There's no twisting of arms. It's completely voluntary. It's just making the needs known. And then sometimes people on that group sense from the Holy Spirit the conviction that they're supposed to help meet that need. And so they give toward that. They give it through the church so it's done anonymously. Um, anonymous isn't the only way to give, but it's a way that avoids constrainment between people. Uh, and it's also a way that for those of us who struggle with pride, like myself, we can avoid giving so that we're noticed. You know? Uh, so if you would like to be part of this group, um, Roberto, are you around? I, he was, I thought he was here. Anyway, um, communicate with Roberto if you need, we need to talk to me and we'll add your name and your WhatsApp number to that, to that group. And again, I want you to hear me. There's no, it's, it's not a manipulation. It's not a forcing. And maybe you say, well, I don't have very much. It's not about how much we have. Because it's about God's resources that are being given to him. So if he can take five fish, five loaves and, what was it? Five loaves and two small fish and feed thousands and thousands of people, he can take one heal and provide for many, 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 many people with one heal or 50 centavos or 25 centavos. So it's not about, this isn't a group for people who are wealthy exclusively. But if you have a heart for giving, I'd like to invite you to join. And I also want you to know, you may be aware of this, but as a church, we also give from church funds to help people. For those of you who are members, you see our financial reports from time to time, and there's one line item that is always over budget. And it's usually over budget starting in 
February. And that's the Benevolence Fund. And you know what? I'm, I'm grateful that God provides for us to, be, to enable us to help people within our congregation that are part of our community. But we also want to extend to you the blessing of being involved in that giving. So this group with Alberto, that's not the only way you can give. Of course not. Of course it isn't. But it's an option. So if you would like to be part of that group, it's, it's anonymous. We keep strict um, sigilo. But um, you, can, you can be part, part of that. Let me know or let, let Roberto Garcia know. And the second way, the, so that's related to giving. The second way is more given to relating. Walking together, bearing one another's burdens. And to this, I want to draw your attention to our community group ministry. Many of you are already part of a community group. It's a smaller group, a more intimate group, where you're able to get to know people better, to invest in their lives more directly, not just financially, but in prayer, in friendship, in brotherhood and sisterhood. Until recently, Pastor Bill and Mary had been leading this ministry, but they have passed it on to Dale and Tamara Kyes. Um, if you don't know who they are, here's a picture of them. Of course, if to really be able to identify them, I should have had them send a picture with masks on because um, you know now you still won't know who they are. But, uh, but anyway, and I'm going to give you permission right now, if you need to take out your phone to take a picture of, of this information, please go ahead and do that. This is their personal contact information, their WhatsApp and their, and their email addresses. If you are not part of a community group at Calvary, we would like to invite you to join, okay? We would like to invite you to become part. And if you contact Dale and Tamara, they will make sure that you are connected to a group. In particular, because in, in the next couple weeks, we're relaunching the Seeking Him study uh, on personal revival that we had begun before the pandemic. And we're going to be doing this study through the community groups. So this is an opportunity for you to, to join in and walk with a smaller community. It's, it's impossible, even though we're not a huge megachurch, it's impossible for everyone who attends this church to know everybody else intimately. Um, so the community group context is a way that we can grow deeper in relationships and in unity with one another, with a smaller group within the body of Christ. Brothers and sisters, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a part of the body of Christ. You are a member of the family of God. And as such, you have laid before you and me God's desire, Christ's prayer, that we would be brought to complete unity so that the world would know that he, the world would know that Jesus was sent by God to be the savior of the world. Unity is paramount. It is practical. It is, help me out with my third point because it just slipped my mind. It is for a purpose and it is not perfection. So if you're worried about striving for unity because you're not perfect, join all the rest of us that are not perfect in striving for unity within the body of Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are your church. We are not our own community. We are not, we didn't create ourselves. You did. And we humbly ask that you would 
lead us into ever-increasing unity based upon you as our focal point so that the world would know that you came to earth from God, that you are God, and that your resurrection is the only road to redemption and hope. For it is in your name, Lord Jesus, that we pray. Amen.